You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get started. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you that you have given us the opportunity to gather together once again as a church. God, I thank you for the time that we've had already today to reflect on the resurrection um, as we begin a celebration together um, of you raising your son to life for our salvation. And uh, God, I pray that as we look into your word together today, that you would um, strengthen our faith in the resurrection, God, that we would have a better understanding of the purpose of resurrection and the hope that we have as believers, um, God, ultimately so that we can uh, take this message to others, that we can teach resurrection uh, to others, especially during this time of year when um, all churches together are focusing on this. Um, God, I pray that we would be able to communicate to others that there has been a victory won over death, that people can pass from death to life and be saved. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we've been working through that verse by verse. Today is going to be a little different as we uh, anticipate Easter next week and not being able to meet together here. We're going to focus our attention this morning on the resurrection. Uh, and so today's going to be a little bit more uh, topical in nature, um, which for those of you that have been under my teaching for a while now, you know, when we get into topical teaching, we're looking at a ton of verses, and we're going to look at a lot of verses today, um, and I'm going to try to make some comments about each one, but I really want to give you kind of an overview perspective of what the Bible has to teach about resurrection, um, ultimately to do what Paul wanted to do with the church of Thessalonians. You'll remember in 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul says that he and Timothy and his, his ministry group are trying to get back to that church. In verse 10 of chapter 3, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So my desire today is to, um, hopefully for some of you, uh, supply or fill up what is lacking perhaps in your faith about the resurrection. That I can strengthen your faith in what scripture has to say about the resurrection. That you can leave here today better understanding the resurrection of Christ and what scripture has to say about resurrection for us as well. As we wait and hope for the day that Jesus returns and we actually experience our glorification where we receive new bodies. Um, I don't know about you, but as I've been studying resurrection and, and anticipating the, um, the Easter season, I've been thinking about the fact that uh, defeating death is a common sought-after theme in our culture. Um, you don't have to look any further than movies to know that defeating death is a... Is a common theme a lot of times. It's it's always pictured as um, possessing power for someone who can defeat death. Whether it's resurrection or whether it's avoiding death altogether. Um, for those of you that watch the Indiana Jones movies, there's the last one, The Last Crusade, where the the journey is to find the fountain of youth, uh, to, to defeat death, basically, to avoid death altogether, to find some way to not grow old, to not die. Uh, which really, as a movie, is fictional, but not so fictional in that um, there were many explorers who came looking for that same fountain of youth here, which goes from uh, fictional to reality. The, the, the real nature of people wanting to uh, defeat death, to avoid death altogether. And it's always viewed as a, as a powerful thing, even to the unfortunate extent of a lot of the horror movies, a lot of silly horror movies, uh, are made off the fact that you can't kill the killer. That the killer is able to defeat death and avoid death and, and can be resurrected. And unfortunately, a lot of times that power is attributed to evil. That evil is impossible to defeat. Um, whereas in Scripture, it's the opposite. That we see that Jesus has the keys of death. That he's the one that's defeated death. And we're going to see that um, today as we look at the Scripture's teaching on resurrection. It, it's unfortunate because... You know, this time of year is when, as a church, we focus on resurrection. We focus on what Jesus has accomplished. And we have a message of resurrection that we get to teach to others. And, and unfortunately, if we were selling it, if we were selling eternal life, a lot of times we would probably get a lot better response. If, if we could communicate to Sonoy and the surrounding areas that next Sunday we were going to be selling something. That would allow them to defeat death, to never die, to, to live for eternity. 
Something that you really couldn't put a price tag on. But if we sought to do that, you would have people seeking to purchase it. Something that's freely offered to us in Scripture. Um, But it, it goes back to that theme that as a culture, we desire to defeat death. Death is unnatural. Um, we weren't created to die originally. Death is a result of sin, we know from Scripture. And, and so as a culture, even people that, that aren't religious, there's that desire to, to escape death, to avoid death. And we'll see today in Scripture um, what God has to say about resurrection and how we can defeat death, how we can escape death. I want to give you three books real quick before we start, because I know towards the end we may be running short on time. Um, If after today you want to know more about the resurrection, which I would encourage you to know more about the resurrection, it's, um, as we've already reflected on in the first hour, it's what makes our faith real, it's what makes our faith valid. Without the resurrection, we don't have Christianity, we don't have the church, we don't have the Christian faith. So if you're desiring after today to to learn more about the resurrection, you realize that that you didn't know maybe as much as you thought you did about the resurrection, that I would encourage you to read one or all three of these books. The first one is called The Risen Jesus and Future Hope by Gary Habermas. Um, I had a class with him at Liberty. He's pretty world-renowned on the resurrection. Um, This book is uh, unique in the sense that he talks about the resurrection, but then also relates it to his own life in the struggle that he had in watching his wife die from cancer. And how the truth of the resurrection brought him through that tumultuous season in his life. The Risen Jesus and Future Hope by Gary Habermas. Uh, Another one that's more apologetical in nature, but really, really easy to read. Meaning that it's going to show you arguments for why the resurrection is real. Like, why it's the only thing that makes sense. Why uh, it takes faith to believe in the resurrection, but ultimately it takes more faith not to believe in the resurrection. When you look at the evidence and facts, it's called The Sun Rises by William Lane Craig. Really short read. Um, Like I said, it's full of apologetical information, but in a way that's really easy to read and understand. Um, And he just kind of lays it out from a historical perspective. This is the facts, and all the facts point to the resurrection. And then one that's a little bit more application, uh, what the resurrection is and then how it relates to us, what we're supposed to do with that on a daily basis it's called Raised with Christ by Adrian Warnock, How the Resurrection Changes Everything. All three of these I would encourage you to uh, potentially spend some time going through just to understand better uh, what Scripture has to say about the resurrection. As we've already looked at 1 Corinthians 15 today, uh, the resurrection is presented to us in Scripture is absolutely necessary uh, for our salvation. In fact, one of the definitions I came across in the books that I just recommended to you, they define a Christian as someone who believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and lives in light of the implications of that event. So that's you again. A Christian is someone who believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and lives in light of the implications of that event. And we'll talk at the very end what those implications are. What does Jesus' resurrection imply for us moving forward? A Christian is someone who believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and lives in light of the implications of that event. Sam Storms, who's a pastor and a good friend of John Piper, he has this rather lengthy quote about the importance of the resurrection in his own life. And I wanted to kind of use that to springboard us into talking about this this morning. He says... I can honestly say that I've staked my life on an empty tomb. Everything I am, everything I own, everything I've done or hope to do hangs suspended on whether or not Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. The decision I made decades ago to put my trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is only as good as the tomb is empty. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, my life is a sham. I've invested everything in, staked everything on, entrusted everything to the historical fact of the empty tomb of Jesus. If his body and bones are still buried somewhere in Palestine, or have long since disintegrated under the force of time and the law of physics, nothing has meaning for me, nor do I have meaning for anything Or anyone else. 
I can honestly say I've staked my life on an empty tomb, which is a challenging quote for me. Because I, I can verbally say that, that, yeah, without the resurrection, my life doesn't make sense. But would it still make sense without the resurrection is what we have to ask ourselves. Have we really staked our lives on the resurrection? The disciples did. The early church did. I mean, the, the resurrection radically shifted the devotion of the disciples to Jesus. Before, I mean, they're there. They're hanging around. They're listening to him. They're invested in him. I mean, they're hanging on every word that he has to say. But then when the heat gets turned up, we know that the disciples, they get a little shaky, right? That Jesus even tells them at the Last Supper, he says, um, you guys are going to get dispersed here when I die. I'm about to die, and you guys are going to scatter. And, and Peter stands up boldly and says, not me, not me. I'm not going to do that. And, and Jesus says, actually, before the next morning, you're going to deny me three times. And we see that, that... Judas and, and this group meet them in the garden, and Jesus is arrested and taken, and the disciples are, are dispersed. I mean, they're running scared. They want nothing more to do with Jesus. It was fun while it lasted, but we're not doing this. We're not willing to die for this. And, and Peter, when approached by, by not even threatening people, you know, females coming up to Peter saying, Hey, I know you. You're a disciple. You're, you follow Jesus. No, no, not me. I don't know who you're talking about. That's not me. And he's fearful, he's fearful of being identified with Jesus. And we see that radically change, radically change after the resurrection to the point that if, if you read the book of Acts and you're reading about Peter, it seems like a totally different guy. Peter in the before the resurrection and Peter after the resurrection, he's not the same guy. And he's not. I mean, there's a reason for that because he's not. He has been radically changed by the truth of the gospel, specifically the truth of the resurrection. I want to give you some accepted facts. We, we talked a minute ago in our discussion groups. What are some reasons to believe that the resurrection happened? I want to give you, and these come from Gary Habermas, accepted facts even by people that don't believe in the resurrection. Okay, Obviously, there's a, there's a whole host of people who believe that the resurrection is false, it's made up, it's not true, didn't happen. And what Gary Habermas has done and what his ministry is, is based off of is he talks with people and argues for the resurrection based on things that we do agree on. So, not using scripture, he takes accepted facts and says, the resurrection has to have happened. And it has to have happened, and you have to see that because of these accepted facts that we agree on, even though you deny the resurrection. So things that, that everybody pretty much believes, everybody agrees on. And these may help you in talking with people about the gospel. Someone says, you know, there's no way Jesus came back from the dead. Okay, well, do you realize that these things happen? Well, those things didn't happen. Well, do you realize much more educated people than you, who don't believe in the resurrection, they believe these things happened. Okay, some things that everyone basically believes happened. One, Jesus died on a cross. It's just widely accepted, even by people that aren't Christians, that don't believe in the resurrection, that Jesus did die by crucifixion. Secondly, that he was buried. That he was, his body was physically put into a tomb. That his death caused the disciples to despair. It's accepted that the disciples did not respond positively to the death of Jesus. That they did lose hope. That they did despair. That they did run scared. So he was crucified. He was buried. The disciples ran away. Fourth, that very, very early, within days... The tomb was discovered empty. That's accepted. There aren't a whole lot of people that argue for a non-empty tomb. Most people believe that Jesus' tomb was discovered within days to be empty. Fifthly, the disciples had experiences that led them to believe they had seen the resurrected Jesus. So even the skeptics, they believe, they accept the fact that, yes, disciples had experiences that they believe were with the resurrected Jesus. Six, that they were transformed by these experiences to become bold proclaimers of Jesus. So they believe that, yeah, the disciples had despair. They lost hope. Then a tomb is discovered empty. 
then they have some type of experience. Some people class, you know, classify it as hallucinations. But they had some type of experiences that were very real to them that made them believe Jesus was back from the dead. And that it radically changed them. It radically changed them to become bold proclaimers of Jesus. So even skeptics believe that Peter was different after the supposed resurrection. Um, seventhly, the resurrection was the center of preaching in the early church. That's widely accepted that the resurrection became the focal point of teaching in the early church. Number eight, that this message was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem where Jesus had died and was buried. Now, why is that important to us? Why is it important that this message of resurrection was specifically taught in Jerusalem where he died and was buried? Why, why, would, that be, why would that be unique? Why, why would that be important to the validity of the resurrection? Because if anybody could expose it, if anybody could have exposed the silliness of such a thing, it would be the people that were right there that saw him die on the cross, that saw him get put into a tomb. I mean, we're not going halfway around the world, world and saying, hey, you're not going to believe this. There's a guy in Jerusalem who was, who was killed on a cross and he came back from the dead. When you're halfway around the world, there's no way to prove that or not. This message was in Jerusalem. Where it could have been refuted very easily if it was going to be refuted. The disciples didn't shy away from teaching this to, to ignorant people. They went right to the heart of where it happened and began to proclaim, we've seen him. We've seen him back from the dead. Number nine, this message resulted in the church being born. So skeptics accept the fact that not only did the disciples have experiences, that people believed them. People believed their experiences. And that the day of worship, ultimately, for the church, shifted from Saturday to Sunday. And number ten, skeptics accept the fact that major skeptics believe this. That James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, the persecutor of Christians, Changed their minds about Jesus. That's widely accepted. That yes, his brother and one of his worst enemies changed their minds after claiming to have seen him resurrected. Now maybe you look at those ten things and you say, well if we all believe that, how can we not believe the resurrection, right? I mean if we're going to believe that all these things happened... How could you still find evidence that the resurrection did not happen? Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle suggests, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So if we remove the fact that it's not impossible that a resurrection happened, even though it may be improbable, if all the evidence is pointing to that, it's got to be the truth. These are ten things that everybody, ultimately, that has examined the resurrection, believes and accepts. And to me, all this overwhelmingly points to the resurrection being real and valid. And I've kind of said before, uh, I'm so thankful that God gives us this type of evidence because me, naturally, I'm a skeptic. I, I have a hard time believing things that don't sound possible. You, you can come tell me a story of something that you experienced. And, and my first inclination is probably going to be, I don't know if that really happened. I, I'm a skeptic. I, I don't naturally believe things that sound eh, a little fishy. And so I'm so thankful that God has given us such overwhelming evidence to where when I look at it, even in my skeptical nature, I have to look at it and say, this is the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. And so I'm so thankful that God doesn't just tell us in Scripture that he's given us so much evidence to overwhelmingly point us to the resurrection. I'm going to give you three points as we, as we continue to look at this overall teaching of Scripture about resurrection. Uh, the first one, the anticipation of resurrection, the promise of resurrection, and the purposes of resurrection. Anticipation, promises, and purposes. 
Resurrection is a theme throughout all of Scripture. It begins and ultimately ends talking about life and death. You realize that? Garden of Eden in Genesis, God creates. He creates Adam and Eve in his image. Creates them with the purpose of living forever. I mean, that's the purpose. He instructs them. He says, you sin, you will die. You sin and you will bring death into the world, but you've been created to live forever with me. We know they choose to sin, and, and through what Paul tells us in the book of Romans, we know that through Adam's sin, death and sin entered the world. And we inherit that sin. We become corrupt through that sin. But then, from there on, from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end, we are given the hope of resurrection. We are given the hope of eternal life. We're given the hope of the defeat of death and sin. In Romans chapter 8, if we kind of skip to the middle, if we're thinking of it in a, in a timeline maybe. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says, all of creation is waiting for this. Ever since Adam and Eve, sin and death entered the world, creation has been longing and growing, groaning and waiting for the day when Jesus comes to fix everything. That the creation wants to be recreated. And we know from Scripture that the heavens and the earth will be recreated. Creation longs for this. Paul says, we long for this. We can't wait. We, we should be longing and, and hoping and waiting for our bodies to be fully removed from sin and death. No more pain. No more suffering. No more sin and death. And we see a picture of this in the future, that it will happen. That we've, given, we've been given assurance that that day will come as we wait in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was created on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. We don't, we don't have to purchase this. Not that we could ever put a price tag on it, but it's... Without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We're given a hope that ultimately this will all be removed. That those who continue to choose to live this way, they will be removed. Because God's interested in recreating an environment where there is no sin and death. That it was brought into this world with Adam. It will ultimately be removed through Jesus Christ. He's begun that process on the cross and his resurrection and his perfect life. And we will see that culminate when he returns and he puts an end to all of these things. The Bible begins and ends talking about life and death. And throughout this process, resurrection has been given to us as a picture, even though it hasn't been fully realized. What were the numbers that you came up with? How many incidences in Scripture do we have of people being raised to life? What's the number? What did y'all come up with? Eight. Eight? That's including Jesus, right? Okay. Any other numbers? Ten. Ten? Seven? 
If you include Jesus, it's ten. Um, separate from Jesus, and I would say uniquely different than Jesus, then you would have nine different incidences where people are raised to life. And if you think about the amount of years that we're talking about, that's not very many um, recorded to us in Scripture. Um, I'll give you the nine real quick. We're not going to focus on them um, all. We've got the widow of Zarephath's son in 1 Kings 17. I'm not going to spell that for you either. You can just have to abbreviate that one. In uh, 1 Kings 17, this is when um, Elijah comes to this widow and there's a famine in the land. And her and her son are basically preparing their last meal together. And Elijah shows up and, you know, God sent me here. You're going to feed me. And she says, sir, you don't understand. I ain't got enough to even feed me and my son. Elijah promised her, he says, you're going to have food until this famine ends. That thing's going to keep replenishing, so bring it to me because we're about to have an all-you-can-eat situation right here. And so they, they eat, and then, and then eventually her son dies. And her son dies, and it says, um, she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms, carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged, Laid him on his own bed, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Resurrection, a lot of times in scripture, is used to either validate someone's ministry or to push someone towards faith. And, and really those, those kind of go together. Uh, validating the, the, the message that the man of God has brought and then faith in that message through the resurrection. This widow here, uh, her perspective about this is, is ultimately strengthened as she sees her son brought back to life. You've also got an incident in 2 Kings 4, uh, the Shunammite son. This lady was, was helping Elisha a lot. Elisha says, what do you want? She says, well, I'm, I'm old and, and I'm barren. Actually, the servant says she's old and barren and her husband's old and they don't have a child. And, and so Elisha says, all right, a year from now you're going to have a baby. And, and the baby grows up and, and it's a son. He's working in the field and basically starts complaining of a headache to his dad. You know, I'm sick. And he dies. And, and he's brought back to life. Um, Elisha prays over him once again, and, and he is restored. We also have a um, kind of a random encounter, maybe, in Second Kings as well, 13. Elisha has died, and, he, and he's ultimately buried. And these other guys are burying this other guy. Like this other guy's died. And a group of raiders basically show up, and they freak out, and they kind of toss this guy's body and it ends up in Elisha's tomb, and as soon as it comes in contact with Elisha's body, it's raised to life. And then it just moves right on to the next story. I don't know why. I don't, I don't, I'd like a little bit further explanation, like, what was that guy thinking when he woke up in a tomb? And he's like, whoa, like, there's a dead guy here, I thought I was dead, I'm not dead anymore. Like, nothing. I mean, it just, hold on, next story. And the, the author continues to write. So I don't have a lot to say about that one. Um, that's the three incidences in the Old Testament. And then Jesus shows up in the New Testament and begins to demonstrate power over death. And, and it comes from God. We have the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7. This is where Jesus shows up at the funeral. And basically there's a processional going on. And, and Jesus walks up and tells this guy just to get up. And, and, and the guy's restored. Imagine going to a funeral where everybody is mourning over death. And all that radically changes. All of a sudden it becomes a celebration where this son is restored to his family. We also have Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5. Jairus comes and, and asks Jesus to restore the life of his daughter, and that's done. The most popular one, probably Lazarus in John chapter 11. We've also got in Acts chapter 9, the story of Tabitha or Dorcas, who was brought back to life. Eutychus is brought back to life in Acts 20. This is the guy that fell asleep in the long sermon, fell out of the loft, and um, he's brought back to life. I think his name actually in the original language means lucky. 
Um, so it kind of kind of shows that there. Matthew 27 that I had you look at today, 51 and 52. Um, it's the only time it's mentioned in Scripture. It's not mentioned in any of the other Gospels. Matthew 27, 51 through 52 says, this is, this is during the crucifixion. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went to the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is a confusing passage. I can tell you that I don't fully understand exactly what's going on here. Um, I challenge you as to whether or not these guys have glorified bodies or not. Are they, are they glorified or not glorified? And I told you, you couldn't look at study notes. Um, to me, just reading the passage at what it is, this is how the story seems to, the, the narrative seems to relay it to me. Is that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn, there was an earthquake, and graves were opened, and people were raised from the dead. And then it seems to say, after Jesus' resurrection, they left their tombs and went to the Holy City and appeared to men. That seems to be how it kind of flows there. And it's hard to say because it's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. Matthew doesn't explain what he's doing here, what he's talking about. We're just given, given to us in narrative form. But if I, in the way that I read it, it sounds like veil was torn when he died. Earthquake when he died. Tombs were opened when he died. Then they came into Jerusalem and appeared to many after the resurrection of Jesus. John MacArthur is adamant that these guys have glorified bodies. The ESV Study Bible says these guys have glorified bodies. My personal opinion, not that it, I don't know that it really ultimately matters, um, is that these guys are not in glorified bodies. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons, and then we're going to move on to the promise and purpose of resurrection. A couple of reasons that I have said these guys don't have glorified bodies. There's no other mention of it in Scripture. No other mention of it in Scripture, which to me... Makes it sound like these are the same type of resurrections as Lazarus and Eutychus and Dorcas. People that were raised to life and then died again. We realize that Lazarus wasn't raised with a glorified body. His resurrection is different than Jesus. He was raised and then he died again. Guys in the Old Testament, sons and daughters, they're, they're raised, they die. To me, if this is a different kind of resurrection... Surely somebody would have mentioned it in the epistles. Hey, we get glorified bodies. And the reason we know that is because there was a bunch of people that got them when Jesus was risen from the dead. Right? But there's no mention of it. No mention of it anywhere else in Scripture. Which is not surprising, like I said, if it's the same as Lazarus. You know? We, we've, we haven't seen that a lot, but we've seen resurrection before. We're not going to come back to it because Jesus is better now. We're going to focus on that resurrection. Which is a reason for me to not accept it as glorified bodies. Secondly, Old Testament saints are still waiting for their glorified bodies. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, 38 and 39. Talking about kind of the, the hall of faith that is often referred to as, as, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So the author of Hebrews says, hey, Old Testament people are still waiting for their glorified bodies. They're waiting for us to all get it together, basically. Hey, we're all going to do this together. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4 that when Jesus returns, people that are dead in Christ will rise. Then we'll go and we'll all get glorified bodies together. Uh, we know from Scripture that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So these guys, if they're in glorified bodies... They had to come back from the dead after Jesus. So you'd have to flip the, this thing there. They have to come back from the dead after Jesus because Jesus is the first one with his glorified body. 1 Corinthians um, 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the, the first that gets his glorified body. Verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. 
So we're kind of told that Jesus is the first one to get resurrected with the glorified body. Then we get resurrected when he returns. So we know Jesus has to be the first fruit. Um, and so, again, those are some of the reasons that I would say that these guys are not in glorified bodies. But all these resurrections, Lazarus, Eutychus, they all give us a, a picture of resurrection, but it's not fully realized yet. Jesus is the first to experience what we are going to experience one day when he returns. We're given the promise of resurrection in Scripture as well. The end will be marked by resurrection. Daniel 12.2 tells us that some will be raised to, to life, some will be raised to judgment. And there's an allusion to that passage in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5 verses 25 through 29... Jesus is talking here. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We have, a, we have a responsibility to teach the resurrection to people because every single person we come in contact with will experience resurrection one day. The only question is whether it will be a good or a bad resurrection. Some resurrected to life with, with Christ for eternity. Others resurrected to eternal judgment. Which, which side will we be on? Which side will people that we know, family members, friends, co-workers, fellow students, which side of the spectrum will they be on? Will they be resurrected to life or resurrected to what is referred to in Scripture as the second death? There's a promise of resurrection given to us in Scripture. In John chapter 11, verse 17 through 24. This is something that was widely understood by the Jewish people, that there was going to be a day of resurrection. This is in the story of Lazarus. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days, and Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Martha kind of misses what Jesus is trying to tell her here. Martha says, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I've seen you heal sick people time and time and time again. And you didn't come. You didn't show up and my brother's now dead. Jesus says, Martha, your, your brother's going to rise again. And she, she almost shakes him off and says, yes, yes, I, I understand that. I get that. The last day, the last day, everybody gets resurrected. I understand that he's not fully dead, that he will be raised to life again. So this is evidence that the resurrection was obviously understood by people who didn't have the New Testament yet. So they understood from the Old Testament, yes, there's coming a day when resurrection will happen. And Martha believed it. Ultimately, we see that Jesus, you know, gives her a, a prequel to that by raising her, her brother um, immediately at that point. But we're also given that same hope in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we've already referenced. That when Jesus does return, those of us that die will be raised to life. Those of us that are still here will be united with those people. We'll receive glorified bodies and be ushered into eternity. Which should provide comfort to us because we don't know how long we're still here. You know, as sovereign hope continues to grow, there may be some of us that, that die over the next couple of years. That, that don't make it as far as others. You know, some of us may experience the return of Jesus. And that's what was going on in Thessalonians. That's what their confusion was. They said, hey, we planted a church. We know that Jesus is coming back. But hey, some of us didn't make it. Some of us have already died. Some of us didn't make it through year two of the church plan. What's going to happen to those people? And that's what's so encouraging about being here at Sovereign Hope is that we're told in Scripture, hey, if any of us die before others die in here, and Jesus were to return, we're going to, we're going to see each other again. We're going to be resurrected. We're going to be given new life, eternal life. That promise is given to us. A promise of resurrection that runs throughout Scripture. There's two purposes, I think, that are given to us about resurrection. And we'll close with this. The purposes of resurrection. Two purposes. Number one, to bring us to faith. To bring us to faith. 
And lastly, to prepare us for glory. Two purposes for resurrection. To bring us to faith, to prepare us for glory. I think we see both in Scripture. First of all, I think in order to bring us to faith, the resurrection cannot be a plan B. It can't be unexpected. It has to have been planned. And that's what we see in Matthew 16.21. Matthew 16.21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus taught his death and resurrection before he ever went to Jerusalem to die. You know, we celebrate today as the the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When Jesus rode in on the donkey, was welcomed with hosannas and palm leaves. And then ultimately that started the last week of his life before he would would end in, in death and then resurrection. But Jesus had been teaching his disciples. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. But he was prophesying and predicting that he would come back from the dead. That yes, he would die, yes, he would suffer, but he was coming back from the dead. And he was even uh, clear enough to say it will happen in three days. Not, I'll come back at the end, like Martha would have maybe understood it as. Yeah, everybody comes back in the end, at the end, when there's a resurrection. No, Jesus says, I'm coming back in three days. Three days I'll be resurrected. We know most people missed it. Most people didn't understand it. They weren't, they weren't, it wasn't registering that he was talking about his resurrection. But it's so important to realize That Jesus understood it, Jesus predicted it, he prophesied it. He anticipated it. This is all part of the plan. It's not that God reacted to the death on the cross. This was his plan for Jesus to both die and be resurrected. And resurrection leads us to faith. It leads us to faith. To me, and I challenged you earlier, what's the greatest reason for you in believing in resurrection? To me, it has to be the empty tomb. It has to be the empty tomb. It's accepted that there's an empty tomb. If if there was any type of possibility that a tomb had Jesus' body in it, it would destroy the foundations of Christianity. I told you that the message of the resurrection was taught very early in Jerusalem. We know that there were a group of people that were working night and day to put an end to Jesus and his message. The Pharisees wanted nothing more than to stop this message, to end it, to put an end to this movement. And they, they, they feel like they succeeded with the crucifixion. And so now when this rumor, this, this, this uh, message of resurrection starts circulating, you would expect them to do everything in their power to stop it. Which means showing everybody the non-empty tomb. And they can't. They, as the ultimate skeptics, they have to admit, well, the tomb's empty. The tomb's certainly empty. We've come here and we've checked it. There's the grave closed. The tomb is most certainly empty. And they tell the, the Roman guards, here's what we're going to do. Uh, clearly we can't show anybody the body because it's not here. So we're going to have to tell everybody that it was stolen. That it was stolen. And, and they begin to circulate that amongst the Jews, trying to, to resist the story of resurrection. Uh, we don't have time to get into, into it today, but the theory of a, of a stolen body, uh, ultimately to me, would take way more faith than believing in a resurrection. There's absolutely no body that makes sense to steal the body. There's absolutely no plan that would have worked to ultimately steal the body. No motive to steal the body. All right, let's go, let's go back to the Lazarus story. I told you that the purpose of resurrection is to bring us to faith. And I think we see that really good in the story of Lazarus. John chapter 11. Remember when I told you... Several weeks back, the story of Esther is not about Esther. We talk about the story of Esther a lot, and it's a cool story. Um, It's great for girls because here's a girl that's kind of the hero of the story. The story is not about Esther. It's about God. It's about God and his covenant to his people that he will do whatever necessary to keep his covenant. So when Haman and, and probably ultimately Satan want to put an end to Israel... Put an end to the covenant people. We're going to set up this law where everybody dies. God's already countered it. God already has a Jewish girl in place in the kingdom that's going to thwart this plan of Satan and Haman to destroy Israel. It's not about Esther. It's about God. The story of Lazarus is not about Lazarus. It's about God. God sets it up from the very beginning. In fact, Jesus intentionally doesn't do things 
so that it is about him. Look in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus says, here's what's going on here. Uh, this, death is, this, this illness is not ultimately going to result in death. I know I'm going to go raise him from the dead. And the reason I'm not going to fix it right now is because I'm going to be glorified through it. So he, he intentionally doesn't go. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It's kind of a funny way for that to flow. Jesus loves Martha. He loved her sister, loved Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed right where he was for two more days. That, that's, not, that's not what you would expect to happen. You would expect it to say, Jesus loved Martha, loved her sister, loved Lazarus. So when he heard that his buddy was ill, he left immediately to go be with them. Nope. He hangs out for two days. He's got to make sure that Lazarus dies. There's no question that he dies. He's going to sit in the tomb for four days. So that it really sets it up for Jesus to look really good. It says, um, if you skip down... Let's get down to verse 17. This is the conversation between Jesus and Martha we already referenced. He says in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. We skip down to um, verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? There's still not a lot of expectation that he can raise him from the dead. There is the, the assumed expectation that he, if he was here, he could have stopped this. I don't know why it doesn't translate to where these guys are saying, well, he can bring him back from the dead too. No, it's uh, Jesus missed his opportunity. He could have been here to save this guy, but he wasn't here. And so now he's dead. So there's no expectation of what's about to happen. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this is on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. There it is. Resurrection, bringing people to faith. These people, despite everything else they had apparently seen, had not believed him yet. But Jesus says, I'm going to wait. I'm not going to go. I love these people, but I'm not going to go. I'm going to wait two days. Then when I show up, he's going to have been dead for four days. And there's a reason for that. It's not ultimately about bringing Lazarus back so that his sisters you know, can be consoled and can have their, their brother back. No, it's about these people that need to believe in him. It says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. These people don't believe in Jesus as a result. They reject this resurrection work. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There's the concern there. They said, do you realize what just happened? This man just brought that guy back from the dead. We can't dispute it. He was in there for four days. The man was dead. He was wrapped up and it was going to smell bad if we opened that tomb up. No question he was dead. He's brought back to life. 
And these people that hate Jesus say, do you realize that if we don't put an end to this, everyone is going to believe. Everyone's going to believe this. We've got to stop it. Skip down to chapter 12. Jesus comes back again to visit with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It says in verse 9, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Resurrection makes people curious. Resurrection draws people in. These people come to see Jesus, but they also want to see this Lazarus that was brought back from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Not believing in Lazarus, believing in Jesus. Jesus uses resurrection to bring people to faith in him. He does that ultimately with the story of Lazarus. He does it to a greater extent with his own resurrection as he draws his own disciples to deeper belief in him. Look what it says in John 2.22. 2, this is when Jesus is telling everybody, hey, you destroyed this. I can destroy the temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Everybody says, are you crazy? It takes a long time to build a temple. Um, especially with the tools and the technology that we have. You ain't building a temple in three days. John writes back into the text. Remember, John's writing after the resurrection. So he writes into the text. He says, when therefore he was raised, kind of skipping ahead. Uh, by the way, when we realized that Jesus had come back from the dead, we remembered that he had said this and we believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Real, genuine, life-changing belief happens for the disciples after the resurrection. After the resurrection. It's when they really got it, when they really believed it, when it really made a lasting difference in their life. They're radically changed. John 20, 19 through 20. This is the disciples after the death of Jesus. We've referenced this already, but it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. These guys aren't planning to steal a body. These guys aren't out trying to perpetrate a rumor. They're, they're, they're scared to death. They're hiding in a room with the doors locked, afraid that the Jewish people are going to come take them too. Remember, they wanted to kill Lazarus. Why wouldn't they want to kill the disciples as well? Let's go ahead and end the whole thing. We killed Jesus. Now let's kill all his followers. And so they're scared to death. And it's only after Jesus shows up and confirms the resurrection that they believe and, they're, and they're, their hope is restored. And they're radically, radically changed. And to me, it's huge that his brother James, skeptic his whole life, skeptic sees the perfection of Jesus his whole life. But it's the resurrection that brings him to faith. He goes from being skeptic to a leader of the early church. The early church found the promise and the purpose of the resurrection. They came to faith in Acts 4, 1 through 4. Acts 4, 1 through 4 says... And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed... Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The reason the Sadducees are annoyed by this is because they don't believe in the resurrection at all. They don't even believe in a resurrection at the end of time. And so they're angry that Peter and these people are teaching people about the resurrection. They arrested them. Put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Remember the Pharisees said, if we don't put an end to this resurrection talk, everybody's going to believe this. Now, 5,000 is not everybody, but it's a lot. It's a lot of people. Okay? And they're just telling people about Jesus' resurrection. The Sadducees hate it. They arrest them. But it says that many people believed in Jesus because of the resurrection. In um, verse 33, skipping down in that same chapter. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. 
The resurrection was the message that they were spreading. It all goes together, life, death, resurrection. But the resurrection is what they were hitting on. He came back from the dead. Yes, he died on the cross. Yes, he lived a perfect life. But those two things have meaning because he's back from the dead. The resurrection was the message circulated by the early church. Acts 13, verse 28. The gospel's being expounded upon here. They found in him no guilt worthy of death. They asked Pilate to have him executed, and when they had carried him, carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Who are now his witnesses to the people. These people saw Jesus and they became his witnesses. They were drawn to faith in Jesus. That's the purpose of resurrection. To bring us to faith. So that we have a message that's worth sharing. So that we have a message that's worth telling others about. We're told that we have to believe in this resurrection ourselves. In Romans 4, 20-25. This is necessary for our salvation. If you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, you have to believe that Jesus has come back from the dead. Adam said it earlier. You can't have Christianity without the resurrection. You can't choose to believe some things and not believe the resurrection. Paul's talking about Abraham's faith. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words... It was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Romans 10 says that, that we have to, to believe in our heart, confess with our mouth. We believe in the one who raised him from the dead. But it's necessary for salvation that we have to believe in the resurrection. We've kind of defined faith over the last couple of weeks as trusting truth. Faith is trusting truth. If there's no resurrection, then we are trusting falsehood, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If there's no resurrection, our life's a sham. It doesn't make sense. Our, our, our faith is generated by the resurrection. Paul says in Philippians 3, 7-11, I long to know the power of the resurrection. He says that power of the resurrection in my life is what allows me to endure suffering well. It's what allows me to make it to the end. The power of the resurrection that Paul talks about in Philippians 3 is the power of the Holy Spirit working in you to radically change you because of the resurrection. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead changes us radically, causes us to love others instead of loving the world, causes us to endure trials instead of running away. It's what radically changes us, the same power that raised him from the dead. And then ultimately, the last reason is to prepare us for glory. It's to prepare us for glory. 1 Corinthians 15, 50-58 says that we can't inherit glory with a perishable body. That we have to put on the imperishable. That for today, resurrection draws us to faith. Like it, it strengthens our faith, it draws us to Jesus. But ultimately, for us, resurrection is what equips us for glory. We have to have glorified bodies to enjoy eternity with God. can't enjoy eternity with these bodies. These bodies are subjected to death. We need glorified bodies. So the purpose of resurrection is to prepare us for glory, to get us ready to enjoy eternity with God. Two applications. When we talk about our resurrection, we refer to it as what a lot of theologians would say, the already, not yet type of thing. That there's some aspects that are already happened. It's true to say that we've been resurrected, that we've been raised to life with Christ. That's what baptism pictures we're dead to our sin, raised to walk in newness of life. But there's also the not yet aspect in the sense that we still sin, we still die, we're, we're, not free, we're not completely free from the consequences of sin. But we are called to live as raised people. People who have new life with Christ. My question as we get ready to leave is, are we living like raised people? So application question number one. Are we living... Like raised people. 
Are we living like raised people? Because see, here's what happens. If we really live like we've been resurrected, then others are drawn to faith in Christ as well. That that purpose of resurrection to draw other people to faith gets lived out through us. If I live like I'm back from the dead, like Scripture tells me to, then it draws people to faith in Christ. Lazarus walked around because he was physically raised from the dead. We are to walk around being spiritually raised from the dead. And it's to draw others to salvation. I'm going to give you some verses that we don't have time to look at today. You can look them up maybe in your own time this week. Um, what does it look like to live like a raised person? We're free from judgment, John 5, 24-29. We are free from judgment. Our sin has been dealt with, so we do not have to fear being judged. There's no condemnation for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. We are free from judgment, John 5, 24-29. We are free from sin. That bondage, that slavery to sin has been broken for those of us that have been raised with Christ. Romans 6, 5-14. Romans 6, 5-14. Romans 8, 11. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says that we used to be dead in our sin. That we were dead to our flesh. We were dead. We were, we were separated from God. We've been raised to new life with Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Colossians 3, 1 through 10. We're free from sin. And then lastly, we're free from death. We're free from death. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. That says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus delivers us from death. Revelation 2, 10 through 11. Revelation 2, 10 through 11. Are we living like raised people? And the last application question, are we pointing others to resurrection? Are we pointing others to resurrection? I want to read that statement that Jesus made to Martha one more time. John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I think that that, that question has double implication. Do we believe it for ourselves? Are we living like raised people? Have we genuinely been saved by the one who is the resurrection and the life? Do we believe this? And then the second, the second aspect of that is, do we believe it enough to tell others? Are we pointing others to resurrection? That last application question, are we pointing others to resurrection? Do we believe this? Do we believe that Jesus is the source for eternal life? Do we believe it ourselves? Have we, have we made a genuine profession of faith in Christ? Has he radically changed us? Has he raised us to new life? Freeing us from judgment, freeing us from sin, freeing us from the fear of death. The disciples believed it. That's why Peter can lock himself in a room before the resurrection. And then he can stand and watch his wife be brutally killed, according to extra biblical sources. Be brutally killed and be told by, by these authorities, all you got to do is stop talking about the resurrection. Stop talking about the resurrection and we won't kill your wife. No, I, I can't. I got Jesus is back from the dead. All right, we're going to kill her. Now we're going to kill you unless you stop talking about the resurrection. Peter says, I can't. Can't he's back from the dead. Peter's crucified upside down. He believed it. He didn't believe it before. He locked himself in a room. But now he doesn't fear death anymore. His life is all about the resurrection. Like Sam Storm said, he's invested everything in an empty tomb. My question for us is, have we done that? Do we believe that? Are we pointing others to the resurrection? We sang about it today. To come awake. My hope for us is that as a church, we would come awake with the message of resurrection. That we would live like raised people and we would communicate resurrection to others so that they too can be spared from what scripture calls the second death. And instead can enjoy eternal life with Christ.
Let's pray. God, we thank you for what Scripture has to say about the resurrection. God, we thank you that you have given us so much hope in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. You've been talking about resurrection from the beginning, and you're going to end it. You're going to end that discussion when you fulfill all the hope of resurrection when you send your son to Christ again. God, I thank you for those that you raised to life in, in the Old and New Testament, which points to us the fact that you do have power over death. God, we thank you that Christ's resurrection is different than those other resurrections. That his is for all time. That he will not die again. That while Lazarus died again and Eutychus died again, that Christ never dies again. And God, I thank you that you've given us Christ as the first fruits to what we have to hope for. That we too will one day be resurrected, given new glorified bodies that do not sin, that do not die. God, I pray that that truth would, would resonate with us right now. As we wait for that day, God, I pray that it would change us right now. That we would be able to, to answer Jesus' question, do you believe this, by saying yes. Yes, I have put my faith in Christ. And yes, I am pointing others to this as well. God, I pray that our church would be a missional church that seeks to teach the, the, the message of the resurrection to others. God, especially during these coming weeks as we celebrate Easter with different family members and friends. God, that we would point others to the resurrection. That we would not miss the opportunity to teach others that resurrection is coming one day for everybody. Either to life or to death. God, I pray that we would point those to life. God, help us to live like raised people. Help us to realize that we've been united with Christ. Dead to sin. Raised to walk in newness of life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.